John D. Rockefeller, I think you've probably heard of him, founder of Standard Oil. He was the world's richest man at one time in the 20th century. Was once asked by a reporter, how much money is enough money? How much is enough? Anybody know his famous reply? Just a little bit more. How much money is enough money? Just a little bit more, right? This coming from a man who had a net worth of about 1% of the U.S. economy. That's something Bill Gates couldn't even claim. That's something that Sam Walton could not claim. They didn't even come close to that level of wealth proportionally. Now, Rockefeller was also a devout Baptist and a philanthropist from day one, actually. Didn't come when he, that, he didn't begin uh, to give mainly to education and public health. That didn't happen until, uh, or that happened from day one. So he didn't wait until he was wealthy to give it away. That's something that was important from the get-go. Now, he's a complicated and he's a complex historical figure. I mean, how, that, that, just that quote alone. How much money is enough? Just a little bit more. Now, given he's a Christian, that's a confounding reply. I don't know what he means. Is he just being honest? Or is he commenting on the dangers of wealth and greed? We don't know. Jesus talks a lot about money and possessions. He's never shy about it. Um, Money and possessions were often like the prime example in those parables. How many times you see talents and possessions and property. He's always talking about that. Now, in his society of that day and age, wealth was seen as a sign of God's blessing. So prominent rabbis tended to be wealthy. Hillel, one of his contemporaries, he was wealthy. So wealth equaled blessings from God, which meant Wealth is how God shows his favor, okay? Culturally, that was a very dominant view. Now, think about this. What if you're poor? Okay, remember, there's no middle class. I talked about that a few weeks ago. What if you're poor? Then you're not blessed. You're not favored by God. It leads to some very uncomfortable questions. Lord, what am I doing wrong? What have I done to displease you? How has the wealthy man pleased you? gets in a really funky and terrible theology. So culturally, morally, theologically, it's bankrupt. And Jesus spoke against that in the Beatitudes, and he speaks against it in our gospel passage today about the rich young ruler talking about the role that our possessions, our wealth, our stuff plays in following him. So this man in this story, we're in Mark 10, 17 or 31. Uh, I'm going to paint a picture of him for you. I'm going to pull from the three synoptic gospels. I'm going to pull from Matthew, Mark, and Luke because they paint, I think, a really full picture of him. So I want to give you a sense of that, a basic sketch I'm going to call him the rich young ruler. I'll tell you why he's rich, young, and ruler. We'll talk about those. So he's wealthy, right? Um, this means that he's in a really different social context than Jesus and the disciples. Very, very different. There's a big divide there. So you need to have that in your mind as this man comes and seeks Jesus out. All but Matthew, the tax collector, came from poverty, Jesus included. But even Matthew gave that up to follow Jesus, right? So Jesus and the disciples, they do not run the same crowds as the rich young ruler. These are very separate social groups. There's a, very, there's a big divide there. There's a stark contrast there. He's in the upper echelons of society, and they're, they're day workers, right? No middle class, big gap between rich and poor, okay? It's not like our society. It's just, it's just not, not real similar in some ways. And you got to remember this. You couldn't just level up your social class by hard work and ambition, Upper mobility was just not an option as it is in our culture. You couldn't just move up out of just hard work and gumption. You couldn't do it. 
Often you were born in poverty, you stayed in poverty. Often, often you were born into wealth and you stayed in wealth. That just tend to be how it was. So he's rich, he's wealthy. That's the world he comes from. He's young. Now, from other accounts, we don't know how young he is, but there is a sense there, there's a gap um, between him and the ages of Jesus and the disciples. There's some gap there, else it wouldn't have been mentioned. Our best guess, maybe early 20s. So picture someone who's maybe just graduated college, right? And they know everything at that age, right? So, yeah. You get the picture. He's young, okay? He's a ruler. This means he's a man of some importance. He has some earthly power. He has some authority in the world. He has some respect that he gets from the world. His life is, again, really different than the lives of these wandering itinerant evangelists that are hanging out with Jesus. His world is a very stable world. It's a very secure world. People want to be this guy. I'm telling you, he is enviable in that sense. So does that kind of give you a picture, I hope, of what this young man is like, the rich young ruler? More is going to come out about him as, as the dialogue unfolds, but I want you to have a sense of it as we move into it. In verse 17, Jesus is setting out on a journey. The larger context we have to remember, Mark is letting us know that he's heading to Jerusalem. Okay? That's, what's, that's what's beginning to happen here. He's heading for the cross. And that is the larger theme of discipleship, which I want to hear everything through that lens that I'm going to talk about in the rest of the sermon. So he's headed to Jerusalem. He's headed to the cross. This is the way of the cross. This is a discipleship issue that Jesus is going to be talking about in this entire passage, as we're going to see. So rich young ruler runs up to Jesus, and he falls at his knees. Now, he seeks Jesus out, and he does it very enthusiastically. Okay, He runs up, eager beaver, no time to waste, and he falls at Jesus' feet. And that is a way of showing reverence and deference to Jesus. Okay? You're my spiritual authority. You're my teacher. Again, that's sort of some acknowledgement of Jesus as a rabbi and an authority. So this young man, he is earnest. He is pious. And he's taking a posture that says, I'm ready to learn. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm ready. I'm kind of putting myself in your hands in a sense. So he's a true seeker. He is not like the scribes or the Pharisees who, who try to bait Jesus that we see in these other interactions in the gospel. That's not him. The character of this dialogue is completely different uh, Jesus seems to just know a true heart when he sees one, and he engages him very differently. But this young man seems to know he lacks something. He's seeking Jesus for something. Maybe this rabbi Jesus, maybe he can help. Okay? So he runs up very eager, and in this sort of posture, submission, deference. And he brings with him quite a question. It's a doozy, to be honest. Good teacher, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Listen carefully to that question. The rich young ruler wants to inherit eternal life. You cannot buy an inheritance, right? It has to be given to you, and that's from parent to child. Okay? It's given to you. It's bestowed to you. He's on the right track in the sense that is it God who bestows and gives eternal life to us? Yes, it is. In doing so, we become his children. Okay. Think of the parable of the prodigal son. The blessing of the father's household is actually available to both sons. So what must I do to inherit eternal life, good teacher? He's not, I mean, he's not wrong. He's, he's on to something here. Jesus, why do you call me good? Only God is good. Now, even though this rich young ruler is earnest, we get the sense that Jesus is a little skeptical here. Maybe brusque, maybe even a little uh, snarky. 
But when you read the text and the way it flows and you kind of dig into it enough, Jesus' tone makes a little sense because the way it reads, this rich young ruler is either trying to kind of flatter Jesus, right? Kind of being overly solicitous uh, or he's, he's in really enthusiastic but doesn't know jack squat about Jesus or his teaching, right? So a lot of enthusiasm, uh, not a lot of knowledge or maturity to, to accompany that. So Jesus comes back with divine irony. <laughs> this is so Jesus. What does he do? He answers a question with a question, <laughs> which, again, that feels very Jesus. Why do you call me good? Good teacher, what do I need to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Only God is good. He answers a question with a question, and there is some divine irony here. Why would Jesus say this? I think, frankly, it just speaks to his identity as the Messiah. He is God. He's putting the question of who do you say that I am on the table for this man. So follow the logic. It's, it's easy, right? If God alone is good, you're calling me good, then what do you conclude about me? Who am I to you? It's all about his identity. You know the law. By that, he means the Ten Commandments here. And he goes and he, he goes through those, the different ones. And I want you to notice the ones that Jesus focuses on. Jesus recites the commandments from the Decalogue that focus on love of other people, love of neighbor. It's like that last half. He only quotes the latter half. That's the only part he quotes. Don't murder, uh, don't commit adultery, uh, don't steal, don't bear false witness, uh, honor your father and mother. Okay, so this is an expected and orthodox Jewish answer. It is. No surprises here. But what Jesus is asking is this. Have you loved others? Have you loved your neighbor? That's what he's saying to him. Rich young ruler says, yeah, this is verse 20. I've kept all these since I was young. Now, there is no sense of deceit in his answer. There's no sense of guile. But one thing we should notice, he rushes past Jesus' answer way too quickly. Way too quickly. And I think his youth, I think this is where it starts to show. It's kind of like, yeah, yeah, I've done that. It's like, whoa, 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 hold on, cowboy. Well, let's, let's back up. Hold on. Now, on a behavioral level, evidently he's kept the law. Okay? But what about his heart? Right? What about that? If you never broke any of those commandments, did you ever want to? Did you ever desire to? Did you ever have a sinful or an uncharitable thought to your neighbor or someone else? Right? Have you truly loved other people as yourself? Outwardly, sure. Right? Or maybe, but there's that pesky inward breach right here, that human heart. He knows he lacks something. Otherwise, he would not have sought Jesus out. And let's be brutally honest. When you're talking about the level of wealth that this man lives in, you don't lack for anything on that material level. So there's not necessarily this massive temptation to steal or kill when your needs are all met and then some, right? When you're rich, when you're well-fed, when you're well-housed, you know, and so on. Why steal, right? Or murder for money. You don't need it. What if your family doesn't have enough to eat, though, right? Desperation and dire circumstances can change our morality. So his basic human needs, we have no sense that they haven't been met, and then some, and been well taken care of. So there's an old riddle. I'm going to put it to you. What does a rich man lack that a poor man has in abundance? What does a rich man lack that a poor man has in abundance? Anybody know? Nothing. Nothing. A rich man lacks, poor man has a lot of nothing. 
But regardless, we're going to let his reply stand. Again, there's no guile. There's no sense of deception here. He, he really believes this. He really believes it. I've kept these commandments since I was young. And now Jesus, the great physician, is going to get to work. Here he goes. Uh, he's going to go after this man's heart, and he's going to lay it bare. Jesus looks at him. This may seem like a stray detail. Mark, why are you telling us this? Uh, it is not stray. Uh, this is an earnest, attentive gaze. Like he's looking at someone straight in the eyes. Okay? He makes eye contact with them. Okay? It's not a distracted comment. He is focused on it. He looks him straight in the eyes, and it says that he loved him. Jesus loved him. He's the only person in Mark singled out as being loved by Jesus. This man, the rich young ruler. So Jesus, there is compassion here. Jesus sees this man and has compassion on him. He loves him enough to tell him the truth. Okay? Jesus is going to go after his heart. And by go, and how he's going to do that is he's going to go after his stuff. He's going to go after his pocketbook. He loves him enough. He loves him enough to invite him to repent, to do that 180. Turn around, go a different direction. So one thing you lack, he says, here's kind of my subtext. You showed up here today hoping for an answer to something, something inside you that rang hollow or was empty inside you, something. So here, here's what it is. One thing you lack, sell everything you have, give the money to the poor. And then you'll have real treasure that moth and rust cannot destroy. And notice this, then come follow me. Do that first, then come follow me. Pretty heavy, pretty heavy duty. This first very critical decision, sell everything, follow me. It's an invitation to a lifestyle of surrender, right? Die to yourself and continue to die to yourself. It's just cost of discipleship stuff. So God's love can absolutely rattle and rock us sometimes. Would you, is that fair? Would you guys agree with that? I see some head nods. I'll take that as a, a, an amen. God's love beckons us towards repentance, but it doesn't always feel like love. The experience of it isn't always like love. God doesn't always woo. Sometimes God disrupts for our good, and that is, that's what Jesus is doing here. Now, you know what happens next. Uh, the young man hears this. He hears the answer. Here's what you lack. Sell everything you have. Give it to the poor. You'll have treasure in heaven, and then come follow me. Then you'll be ready. He's crestfallen. He's absolutely crushed. It's a very strong language by this. He's really, his soul and spirit is greatly troubled. His response is literally just sorrow and grief. Okay? He goes away. The text says, because he's very wealthy. He's not willing to sacrifice, fully commit his life to Jesus. That security, that stability that wealth provides, that meant more to him than love of his neighbors as well, those who surrounded him. Again, Jesus was saying, Give it away to the people around you. Give it away and then come follow me. He is the only man in the entire New Testament who goes away sorrowful from Jesus' presence. That is not usually the pattern. I mean, Pharisees, they have their own kind of category, right? But most people sought out Jesus in desperation and sadness. And they usually go away joyful or hopeful or more whole. More whole. The rich young ruler is the opposite, complete opposite. And he's a very stark kind of example. 
Jesus' love for this man, which I find really touching, it does not have the effect we'd hope for. It's a pretty tragic and sad ending to the story. So Jesus, the great physician, kind of like the doctor that says, does it hurt here? And you're like, ah, yes. He puts his finger on that one area, right? Does it hurt here? Wealth is the rich young ruler's golden calf. And Jesus is saying to this Young man, young man, if you really loved your neighbors yourself, if you really loved others, you would already be using your wealth in very different ways per verse 21. Notice the rich young ruler, he thinks he's kept those commandments. He's kept them all, but he's missed something huge in the commands regarding his neighbor and loving others. And that is his lack. Part two debriefing what just happened with the disciples, which Jesus kindly and often does. It's a powerful scene. So now we shift to the disciples. Now it's kind of a bit of a huddle, if you will. He begins to re-educate the disciples, and I mean that word very intentionally. He begins to re-educate the disciples. It's difficult, very difficult for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. He didn't say impossible. But he did say it was difficult. And the picture he paints is it's really difficult. So riches are a stumbling block and a barrier. Uh, The poor, the humble, the lowly, sometimes they find entry into the kingdom easier for that reason. Because frankly, they just have less insulating them from their need of God. So at this point, here's what we need to see. Even though we go, yeah, yeah, I got that. Everyone is stunned. Everybody is stunned. The disciples are just going, you know, slight, you know, jaws on the floor. Everybody's stunned. But Jesus, culturally speaking, this rich young ruler, he's a moral guy. He's a devout guy. He has a lot, a lot going for him. He's that guy and he has a searching heart. Folks, as the disciples look at this and most others look at it, he is an ideal recruit for the kingdom. I mean, this guy, what, what, are you kidding me? This is exactly the kind of person we need. Despite what the prophets of old had said, Again, most people still view the wealthy, especially blessed by God. So that's, they're, they're battling that. So they're dumbstruck. I mean, the way it reads, they are just dumbstruck. So Jesus repeats it again, but with that familiar metaphor. You know, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. The camel, that was the biggest and the surliest animal. <laughs> In the ancient Near East, and to go through an eye of a needle, which is very small, again, near impossible. Easier to perform that miracle than for a rich person to enter God's kingdom. Now, they were already worked up and confused. Now they're very, very worked up. There's unrest. They're unsettled. They aren't just dumbstruck. Now they're really confused and they're just gobsmacked by this. The description of their amazement, verse 26, it is not positive. It isn't like, People are amazed when Jesus does a miracle. No, it's not positive. They are just torn up and and, uh, kind of turmoil about this. And you have to go, why? What's so striking about this? Let me put it this way from their perspectives. Okay, so Jesus, let me me get this straight. If this man who's kept all the commandments, okay, who's devout, who's a man of power, authority, he's successful, he's young. I mean, do you feel the resume? Such great promise. If he can't be saved, well, then who can be? Who? 
Jesus, this man has everything. That's kind of the subtext. If he can't be saved, what? He's the blessed wealthy. If he can't secure eternal life, what about the rest of us? And that is our pater. What about the rest of us, Jesus? So he looks at them. Same word for how he looked at the rich young ruler. Again, intent, right? Looking at the eye. Looking him in the eye. Looks him in the eye. Men and women cannot save themselves. Guys, your works won't save you. Adherence to the law, that won't save you. Your parents' religion, which you inherited, that's not going to save you. Your wealth that insulates you from me and from others, that can't save you. As it turns out, the rich young ruler was asking the wrong question. It's a good question, but it was wrong. And here's why. What must I do to inherit eternal life? You hear that? He's trying to earn his way into the kingdom. Salvation, we can't attain it. We can't attain it by our own efforts. It's received by faith as something that's completely undeserved. So we can't give ourselves the inheritance. God has to bring it to us and bestow it to us. So I think here is the better question. Jesus, what must God do for me to inherit eternal life? Hear the difference. What must God do for me? Because that leads us where? Straight to the cross, to the scandal of grace. Who then can be saved? Here's how Jesus responds looking at them. With humans, it's impossible. No bones about that. But not so with God. No. All things, all things are possible with God. Verse 27. Peter, huh, predictably pipes up like a gale force wind that he often does. And I feel this one. I, I'm like, Peter, I sympathize. I, Brother, I'm with you. But Lord, we've left everything to follow you. We left everything. Now, Peter is sort of right. He probably still has a boat. There's references later to his house. But is there a big degree of sacrifice to follow Jesus? Yes. We get Peter's point. The disciples took the leap of faith. They followed Jesus. So their possessions, their professions, their stability, security of their prior, prior relatively quiet lives, Jesus upended all of that. Jesus do you see we've given up to follow you? I think that's what Peter's heart cry really is here. Do you see what we've given up to follow you? I get it. I understand that. Jesus calls us to lay it down, right? Look through the Gospels. Everything. Lay it all down. Lay everything to follow me. And there's a real practical reality to what he's doing here. To do the work of Jesus and to do the work with Jesus, you frankly needed to travel light. He advises them at points. Disciples, travel light. Don't bring this. Don't bring that. Don't bring this. I mean, how else can you go out on mission as an itinerant evangelist that moves about from place to place with Jesus, relying on the hospitality of others, if you have all this stuff? You can't. But that was a hard and not stable and not really secure existence. But here's what I think Jesus is inviting the disciples to hear. You know where your security and your stability comes from. It doesn't come from your stuff. I have to be that place. I have to be that stability. I have to be that security. Corey Ten Boom puts it this way. You can never learn that Christ is all you need until Christ is all you have. Right? You can never learn that Christ is all you need until Christ is all you have. And I'm grateful she uses the verb learn. 
We have to learn that. I think there's something really reassuring in Jesus' reply to Peter and the disciples in 29 to 31. There's a sense in, hey, you're right. You're right. There is a, following me requires a great sacrifice. It does. You're going to give up everything to follow me. It will be hard. In this life, you'll have trouble, Jesus says, in other areas. You'll die to yourself, and you'll do it again and again and again. You'll face persecution. But there's something in 29 and 30 that Jesus says that reminds me it is not a loss. Okay, It is not. There are rewards in this life and in the life to come. And no, this is not prosperity gospel nonsense. There are spiritual rewards that dwarf our trials and our sacrifices. There are. I believe those rewards begin here on earth and they certainly extend into the age to come. In the midst of earthly persecutions, hardships, I want you to see what God provides. And I'm going to more talk about the meaning. Because Jesus alludes to things that will be brought back to us. And he speaks about homes, he speaks about family members, he speaks about fields or land. Um, I want us to know what those mean. God will provide home, meaning places of respite, places of provision, places of connection. He says God will provide family members in a sense. When you come into the body of Christ, you inherit brothers and sisters. If you don't have a family, you become part of a family. You have family. God brings that to us. And there's fields and there's land in the sense that there's a mission field. There's work to be done, good work to be done. So what we give up, I think, is dwarfed by the riches of what we're going to receive, what we do receive beginning in this life. Now, I want to make clear, if, I, if, if, I, if you don't get anything, Jesus is not talking about things money can buy here. Hey, see, these aren't things money can buy. Only things that he can give us fill our hands with only that inheritance that comes from our Heavenly Father. Things not owned, but received, stewarded uh, gratefully. So if we hear this as a, here's the great fringe benefits of following Jesus, here's the stuff we get if we follow Him. Again, that's that uh, prosperity gospel and all the falsehoods of that. Oh, we missed it. That's not what this is about. These are the deeper riches which reveal themselves as we follow Jesus with all of our lives. I'm convinced we don't experience those deeper riches with a closed fist on our money or closed fist on anything else. We will, there's something we'll miss out with in Jesus on that. Only thing we hold on to that matters is Jesus. You can never learn that Christ is all you need until Christ is all you have. So this inheritance, this internal life, eternal life, excuse me, it's about belonging to a new family. That's part of what happens not about earning something. It's about leaving everything, following Jesus, and being met by a new family. And though there are troubles and persecutions, there are spiritual blessings as well in this life and the life to come. So let me close here. Just two thoughts. Stored in a little bit here. Um, some of you thought this was going to be one of those tithing sermons. No, it's not. It feels bigger than that because it really is just about the stuff that owns us. And it might be money, it might not. It's about the stuff that owns us. So first thing, um, and I'll say, these are things during confession prayers of the people. If you don't have the answer to these questions, ask God about it in the prayer time that follows. Just ask Him. Ask Him to probe your heart. So first question, what's your golden calf? What's that golden calf? Ask God, Lord, reveal it to me. I, I want to see what is it. It might be money. 
you know, by global standards, we're all very wealthy here. So we could, maybe that's where God wants to speak to you. I, I don't know. But you kind of have to look at what are those areas in your life where you've bolted the door shut and you've said, God, no trespassing. This is mine. Keep away, right? It's a no-fly zone. God, you can't come here. I just want to invite you to trust Jesus. <laughs> Surrender that. Open your hands to him. Lay it down, right? Just lay it down. Follow Jesus with two open hands. Trust me, it works way better that way. Um, so that the world can come to know him via your open hands, your open heart, maybe your open pocketbook. I don't know. So what's your golden calf? Ask the Lord about that. What is it? And trust him with it. Move towards him in that. Second part, last comment. Um, at the end of the passage, I talked about how Jesus, just a minute ago, makes it really clear it's not a loss. It's not like, you know, life sucks and then you die. That's not Christian. I think the second part is slightly different. How can you take stock of what God has given you? Ways God has blessed you. Okay? So where do you see God's blessing? You'll have, you may have to really search for it. You may have to really look for that. You may have to really search your heart for that. You're going to have to look with spiritual eyes. If you look as the world looks, ah, that's not going to help you any. So where do you see God's blessing? Where can you take stock of your life and see, God, where have you blessed me? Okay. So as we pray, ask God to help. Lord, help me take stock. Help me look at my life. Help me take an honest spiritual inventory of my life and the gifts that you've given me. Okay, so golden calves and God have you bless me. So as we move into the prayer time here, just a moment, prayers of the people and confession and such, just focus on those things. Put them in God's hands and see what he says.